The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. In the book of Job, uh, we find some very rich scriptures, very rich truths that I think are very relevant to today. Now, it's important that we understand that the book of Job, if misunderstood, can give us more problems than just about any other book in the Bible. If we misunderstand what's happening in Job, then we're liable to misunderstand the very nature of God. We're liable to misunderstand the nature of suffering and the problems that we're experiencing in our own lives. One other caveat is I don't claim to have all the answers about the book of Job. I don't claim to fully understand it uh, in, in a way that, that I could tell you in every case this is exactly what it means. But I do believe uh, over the years of studying it, the Lord has given me a little light on it to, to try to, and, and, I know, and I know this, Brother Buddy, my understanding of it when I was a child or a younger man is diff- my, my understanding now is a lot different than it was back then. So let's, uh, let, let me first lay a little groundwork about Job. Job has 42 chapters. In the first and second chapter, and in the 42nd chapter, we get a narrative of what's happening. In other words, there's, it's almost as if there's, you know, there's a, the writer is like a narrator. He's saying, here is the scene, and this is what's happening, and this is what's occurring. There's different locations, there are different sets, if you will, of where he's looking at. But, but in those three chapters, they're the only three chapters where it's, it's uh, a narrator telling us what's happening. Once we get to the third chapter, and all the way down through the 41st chapter, it's, it's written from, it's, it's still someone else writing in the third person, but it's someone speaking in all of those chapters. It's either Job or his three friends who came to, to comfort him, but who did, did a pretty miserable job of it, or a man named Elihu who has some good things to say, but he's not all right either. And ultimately in the 38th through the 41st chapter, except for three verses, it's God speaking. And I tell you that because... Uh, you got to be careful going to the book of Job. There's some really rich truths spoken by everyone. everyone. Every one of these speakers gets a little bit of it right, okay? Every, you know, Job, we, we quote Job quite a bit, especially the 15th chapter and the 19th chapter, you know, the 14th chapter and the 19th. How should a man be just with God? You know, if he would contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. That's a truth that is so important to our understanding of life. Then you've got, you know, the 19th chapter. Oh, that my words were now written, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth. Those are some wondrous truths, okay? There are some truths, some great truths in, in the speaker, that the speakers lay out for us in the book of Job. But this is very important in biblical interpretation. We must remember that every statement recorded in the scripture is recorded accurately. But every statement that is accurately recorded by divine inspiration in the scripture is not necessarily a true statement, nor is it necessarily applied accurately. That's why the scriptures have to be rightly divided. 
we have to discern from the context whether the statement that's being made is true, and if true, whether it's being applied in the correct way. For example, when the serpent told Eve, Thou shalt not surely die, that was accurately recorded that he said that, but what he said was a lie. Another principle to keep in mind is that everything people do in the Bible is not necessarily the right thing to do. Sometimes people do wrong. For example, David, who was a man after God's own heart, committed adultery. Does that mean we should go commit adultery? Because David did it? No, David was doing wrong. And if you'll permit me tonight, just for the sake of, uh, uh, of completing our discussion about rightly dividing the Word of God, let me give you one more principle of biblical interpretation that's very important to remember. Everything in the Bible is written for us, but not everything is written to us. Jesus, in one place, in the 8th chapter, I believe it is, of the book of John, looked at some people and said, Ye are of your father, the devil. Now, I know that's written for us, but I hope it's not written to us. <laughs> you know, we're, I, I trust that we're not of our father, the devil. So, so what I'm trying to say to you is this. When we go to the book of Job, for instance, in particular, we got to remember that for the first major portion of the book, from chapters 3 through chapter 37, there are people speaking, and what they're saying, oftentimes there's some truth in it, but most of the time they're misapplying that truth. And I'm not talking about Job. I'm kind of leaving him out right now. But even Job doesn't get it all right. In other words, these principles of biblical interpretation are very important to keep in mind when we try to rightly divide the book of Job. Now, I will tell you this. When you get to the 38th chapter and it's God speaking, you can quote every bit of that and say, that's exactly right. <laughs> Anytime God's speaking, we're good to go. All right, some other facts about Job. Job is most likely the oldest book in the Bible. And, and that means it was written before any other book, including Genesis. Some say that I, I've, I've read a theory that Moses may have written the book of Job, but I don't know. I don't, it doesn't matter. We're not told who it is, so it doesn't matter. But be that as it may, whether Moses wrote it or someone else, it is, it is a book that is written before any other book was written in the Bible. The setting is kind of not, we're not completely sure. It's, it's possibly most, in fact, from what I read, it's most likely that the events of Job occurred between the time of Noah and the time of Abraham. Probably, that's when it happened. Sometime in that time frame, which was several hundred years uh, it is a, it is a, it is by all agreed. It's a masterpiece of Hebrew poetry and literature. It's, it's, if you'll notice the last book before Job was the book of Esther. And from Genesis to Esther, we have a chronological history of the nation of Israel, the people of God, not just the nation of Israel, because the nation of Israel didn't come into being until later on in the book of Genesis, but from Adam to Esther, we have, and Esther's, you know, Esther's probably a little bit out of order. I mean, as far as time-wise, not out of order in the Bible. But, uh, but uh, you, you could say for certain that going up to, to the book of Nehemiah, which is right before Esther, that we've got a pretty much a history book. These are historical books of the Bible. Then when Job comes on the scene, the whole thing kind of changes. You got Job, and then Psalms, and then Proverbs, and then 
Song of Solomon, and then Ecclesiastes. And, and under the Hebrew nomenclature, those are called the wisdom books. In fact, the, uh, the Hebrew Bible in, in their Hebrew tongue is called the Tanakh. It's three divisions, and it's Torah, Tanakh, it stands for the first is Torah, and then Nevi'im is the middle one, and that, that's a reference to the prophets, and the Ketuvim, and that's the reference to the, to the wisdom literature. Wisdom, okay? So what we have here is the first book of the wisdom books. It's the oldest book, according to archaeologists and, his, and historians, as we've said. And so what it tells us, here, and, the, and by the way, it's not a parable. It's not a fictional account. This real account here, if we, un, if we do believe, and I do, that it's the oldest book in the Bible, it was written before any other time, and it deals with, with a man who lived between Noah and, um, uh, and Abraham, then this is the oldest known account of a human being's relationship with Jehovah God. And you think about that. Now, I know Genesis, I'm not saying, Genesis deals with older events, okay? But this is the first book written. So it's the oldest account of a man's relationship with Yahweh, with the God of Israel, with, with the great God of this Bible. And I think, I find that fascinating. I find that so interesting. And my, what subject matter. We always think, of what, what do we think of when we think about Job? Suffering. Think about Job's and patience. Suffering and patience, okay? But I, I, believe, I do not believe that this book is primarily about Job's suffering. That's not, the book is not a book primarily about Job's suffering. You see, Job's problem is not so much a physical or a mental or a material problem. It's a theological problem. It's a theological problem. This book deals with the nature of God himself and our view of God. And that's what I said earlier when we got started, that if we miss this, if we misunderstand Job, we can very easily misunderstand God. Even today, it's, you say, well, how is this relevant? It's the first oldest book thousands of years ago. Why? It's relevant because I don't know about you. I've experienced suffering lately. I've experienced persecution. I've been, I've been accosted by people who don't understand God and don't understand what I'm going through and bring me uh, foolish thoughts and foolish uh, comfort and are miserable comforters to me. Well, guess what? If you can, get, if you can understand from Job who God really is, He's still that God today. Now I said earlier, this is not a fictional account. I don't believe this is a fictional account. Just, just quickly, just as we kind of lay the groundwork here, look with me over in Ezekiel chapter 14 in the 14th verse. And I, I think I can prove to you from the Scriptures that Job was a real man. Job was a real person. Ezekiel 14, and look at verse 14. As Ezekiel, we're jumping in the middle of it, but God is basically talking to Ezekiel about Ezekiel's prophecy and talking about how, how sinful the land has become. And he says this, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Now we know Noah was a real man, and we know Daniel was a real man. He wrote the book of Daniel. Why would God then use some fictional character and throw it in there? I don't believe he would. Job 
is a real person. He's a real man. Now, you don't have to turn there, but over in James, uh, the fifth chapter, the 11th verse, he talks about, we, we, we count them happy that endure, that endure suffering. He said, ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. All these scriptures prove to me that Job was a real person. This is not a parable and it's not a fictional account. Job really lived and he really suffered and the lessons from Job are applicable to us today. Now this brings me to one other point in this overview of the book of Job. As I said earlier, I don't pretend to have all the answers to everything that's going on in Job and all the themes that are there and uh, everything that we need to learn from Job. But I do, as I read Job and as I've studied Job, I do see at least three different themes that recur throughout the book of Job. And these themes are patience, pride, and pity. We're not going to discuss them all tonight necessarily, but I do want to lay that out there from the outset that patience, pride, and pity recur over and over throughout the book of Job. Obviously, as James has already pointed out, and as we've read here, the patience of Job is an important point, it's an important theme, and it's a very important lesson for us uh, to learn from. But there's also um, a theme of pride. Now, what am I talking about about pride? Well, we'll come back to this and flesh it out a little more later, but one thing we notice is that God has some pride in this. And of course, God's pride is never sinful. God is proud of Job. He points Job out to Satan and how good he's living and how proud he is of the way he is conducting himself. We're going to see later on as we go through the book of Job that God delights in the, in the good actions and in the discipleship and in the faithfulness of his servants. God has some pride here in Job, but also we're going to see that there's a problem with Job. Job is a perfect man in the sense of complete and whole and mature, but he's not sinlessly perfect. We're going to read as we study this book about Job, and we're going to learn he had some pride and that that has affected the way God uh, uh, adjusts the hedge. Sometimes our pride needs to be stamped down. We need to be reminded about who we really are. So the, the pride of Job and the pride of his miserable comforter friends, they were all self-righteous and prideful in that day and misunderstood what suffering is all about. And finally, uh, as we've already read in the book of James, pity. Pity is, is one of the themes of this book and, and the, it's the pity of God who is very, God is very pitiful and of tender mercies. These themes are all present as we go through this book, along with many more, I'm sure. We're going to see these themes come back throughout our study of the book of Job. So with that in mind, let's go back to James chapter 5 and verse 11. And here in this verse, we see these three themes in particular coalesce. And we can learn some, some things that are so important about the book of Job that we need to keep in mind throughout any study of this great book. And let's look a little bit at the context of this verse. He's, he's talking about patience. He's, he's talking about, you know, he's, he's just told us things like, uh, in verse 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, unto the coming of the Lord, brethren. And he, he's, he's counseling patience. Verse 8, be, be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draw, draweth nigh. Goes on to 
admonishes us to, to do things in the right way. And he says in verse 10, Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Verse 11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. Now what he's saying here is you've heard about Job and all the sufferings that he endured and he endured them patiently for the most part. And now he says you've seen in the account, the account of Job the end of the Lord. In other words, you've seen where the Lord's going with this. Are you seeing where Job ends up and he says this, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, now we need to keep that in mind as we look in. Anytime you read the book of Job, you know, if you get to questioning, saying, Lord, why are you doing this? Or, Boy, it seems like the Lord is harsh. Boy, it seems like the Lord is arbitrary. Oh, my, it seems like the Lord is being mean. Remember, James, this is the account. This is the summation of the book of Job. That the Lord, the end of the book of Job shows us that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Okay? The account of Job should lead us to that conclusion. So as we study the book of Job, we should remember that. That any, anything that leads us somewhere else, we're misunderstanding the book of Job. So, <laughs> that's a lot of groundwork to lay as we prepare to study the book of Job. But it's extremely important. And keeping all of this in mind now... Let's turn to the book of Job itself and begin to look at what it says. Let's go to chapter 1 of the book of Job. And let's read um, the first five verses. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and very, a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now what we've just read here is the situation that Job could see. This is the situation that Job could see. And, and I'm, I'm going to try to give an overview of this chapter, but I'll tell you this. The, the primary thing we should get out of this chapter is that Job was a great man and Job was a good man. Right. He was a great man. He had all kinds of stuff. And by the way, that tells us, you know, we often say, well, money is the root of all evil. Or it's, it's you know, a rich man can't be a part of the kingdom of God. No, he can Job was a rich man. Job was the greatest man of all those in the East. It doesn't matter how high you rise in this world, you can be a good man. You can be a, a man who serves God wherever you are, a man or a woman, wherever you are. You don't have to hole up in your home or become a nun or become some kind of monk in order to serve God. That was a great misunderstanding in the Middle Ages. They began to pursue piety by separating themselves from the world physically. God expects us to separate ourselves from the world in a spiritual and in a moral sense, but he never expected us to go become hermits. 
I've told you this so many times, that, that old hermit, I, I always forget his name. I looked him up not too long ago. I said I was going to remember it. But there was some hermit that lived in the 100s AD, not long after the apostles had died out. He decided the way to serve God was to get, he had to get away from all the temptations and all the people of the world that might tempt him. So he goes out in the desert somewhere down there and is either in Egypt or, or the, somewhere near Jerusalem. I can't remember exactly where it was. And people would trek out there to him. And man, legends rose up about the guy, about kind of all kind of miracles. They'd go out to see him. But he, he lived for the rest, like decades out there by himself. And I can just see God when the man finally died, standing there at the pearly gates with his arms crossed and his foot tapping, saying, as he comes in, and he's, he's like, hey, Lord. And he says, what were you thinking? I never, I didn't save you in order for you to go off by yourself. I saved you for you to share it with other people. <laughs> you dummy. <laughs> I'm not, I'm obviously making it up. God wouldn't, I don't believe God's going to do that to us when we come. But, it's, but I'm telling you, I don't believe God's pleased with that. God is pleased with us when we serve him where we are. Now we shouldn't entangle ourselves in the world if we don't have to. But you know, a lot of people are born again after they're already entangled in the things of the world out there. Now, you ought to untangle from ungodly things, but if you're in a position of serving, you know, where you've been uh, uh, in a business or uh, some other place like that, serve him. Serve him where you are. Job did. Job was a great man, and Job was a good man, and he had a good family. I'll maybe elaborate on that uh, sometime later, but notice they liked to get together. They loved each other. He obviously done something right in raising his family. He, he had raised them in, a, in, a, in the right way. And it says in verse 5, thus, did, well, by the way, verse 5, <laughs> Job was so pious. He was so much concerned with, with the state of his, uh, uh, the spiritual state of his family and, and with his relationship to God and their relationship to God that he would even sacrifice on their behalf, saying, you know, they might have messed up. You know, that's, that would be tantamount today to, to a mama or a daddy praying diligently every day for their children, you know. It'd be like for me at night coming in and saying, you know, I'm so proud of Mason. I'm so thankful for Mason. But he may have messed up today. Lord, I'm praying for him, you know. Now, I want you to notice that in verse 6, we switch view. We switch our view to, we go from the situation Job could see to a situation Job could not see could not see and notice the setting okay it says there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them now we'll stop right here and just say this most people say that this is heaven that 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 this is eternal heaven that God is up there and Satan has free access in and out now what I read is that he's fallen from heaven uh, God uh, Jesus said I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. And, and then we talk about, uh, there's, there's other places, I think it's the book of Ezekiel, where it, it's talked about that, he, uh, uh, that, that he, he fell, he has fallen from heaven. So, so also, so I, don't, I do not believe this is heaven, okay? Uh, also it says, there was a day. Now, and you're going to read over in chapter 2 about another day. What's one of the primary characteristics of heaven? There's no day. It's eternity. It's eternal. It's, there's no time that passes in heaven. So, so this is something other than heaven. 
And then we read about the sons of God. Most people say that's the angels. Most people also say that Genesis chapter 6, where it says the sons of God went into the daughters of men, they try to make that into the angels coming down and having relations with, with, with uh, human women and some kind of super race uh, coming out of that. I don't believe that's what he's talking about. You know, what, you know, you know if, you, if you look it up, you put quotes around sons of God, it's going to come up 11 times. 11 times. Five in the Old Testament. The rest of the times is going to be in the New Testament. And, and, and I understand though that's a different Greek. You know, the New Testament's written in Greek, not Hebrew. And so uh, there's an argument that, well, it's a totally different thing. But I want you to know, in every instance in the New Testament, it's talking about men. Right. Men and women, okay? In four, at least four of the five instances in the Old Testament, I believe it's talking about human human people, human men, okay? The son, and, and, and you might even say men and women in the sense that, you know, the sons of God represents all. But be, but be, that, as it, be that as it may, in, in, in Genesis, it's definitely talking about men uh, marrying women and, and then them rising up and trying to throw off the yoke of God. But that's, that's another message. Here in the book of Job, it's found three times. It's found in the cha- chapter 1 and chapter 2 and then over in chapter 38. Over in chapter 38, God is speaking. And he talks about the morning stars, the stars singing for joy, and the, uh, the, the stars singing in the creation, and the sons of God shouting for joy. I believe that's clearly a reference to angels. I, I think that's no doubt because men weren't there during the creation. But I believe here what we're talking about is men, not angels, men. Most likely what we're looking at here is a worship service. Said there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now think about what we're doing tonight. It's a worship service. What are we doing? We're not coming in here just to say, "Hey, how are y'all doing?" Let's have let's have a big old social gathering. I hope we're here to present ourselves before the Lord. You see, and I believe this is a worship service here. So you say, "How do you? Why do you? Why do you think it's it's angels?" If he says sons of God in chapter thirty-eight. Why is this not angels too? And that's the angels. Why is this not angels too? Well, let's think about the commonality here. Let's think about the common thing. Why, why are they called sons of God? Why are we human beings called sons of God in the first place as opposed to daughters of men over there in the book of Genesis? I believe it's because God created Adam. We are created. Men, the man was created first. And, and so in a real sense, if you go over to, to the book of Matthew or Luke, I can't remember which one, I always get them mixed up, the genealogy of Christ, I think it's Luke. It gets down, going back and back and back and back from Christ all the way back to Adam. And when it gets to Adam, it says all this time, so-and-so who was the son of so-and-so who was the son of so-and-so. And it gets to Adam, it says Adam who was the son of God. He was created by God. He was a created being by God, okay? Whereas the daughters of men, you know, God created woman from man. <laughs> so she's the daughter of men, you see. So, so how do you get, what, what are you getting at? Well, I don't want to make it too complicated. Let me just say this. The commonality between the sons of God in the book of Job in chapters 1 and 2 
and the sons of God in chapter 3. What are angels? They're created beings. They're created by God. So it's, it's not wrong to refer to them as sons of God, just like here we refer to men as sons of God. So my point about all this, what, what are you spending all this time preaching? Well, I want us to see something here that maybe most many people miss. Satan is not going in and out of heaven. These are not angels that are congregating and the devil's just nonchalantly walking through there, visiting with them and all this. This is a worship service of men. Most likely Job was in this worship service because God points him out in a few minutes. And by the way, another thing I believe that supports this interpretation is that you notice the only one God talks to is Satan. You know why? Because only God and Satan are spiritual beings at this point. The others are physical beings. And, and you know, and I, I'll tell you this, if this is indeed men, a gathering of men, and, and they can see Satan, that, that gathering wouldn't last very long. <laughs> can you imagine if we were all gathered here and we, and we look up and there, you know, I said, well, hey, there's Brother James, there's Brother Buddy, there's Brother Mason. There's, oh, hey, Brother Satan coming in right back there. If you heard me say that, I'm going, if I see Satan come in that door, I'm going out the back door, okay? It would break up the congregation, you see. No, I believe this is a, is a congregation, a worship service made up of men, sons of God. And it teaches us another very important truth. And I'm going to close with this. At this worship service, God was certainly there. We need to remember that. Praise God. I believe he's here. Jesus himself said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. Okay? Guess who else is there? Satan. Satan. Did you know that I, I believe every time we gather, Satan or one of his minions is here. He's here. He's, and you're going to see what happens. We're going to see if we go through this book or, or go a little further into this book. He's looking for an opening. God said, have you considered Job? He said, yeah, buddy, I've considered Job. I've been trying to get him. You just give me a little bit here and I'll take care of him. Now, I, I don't believe, I'm not preaching this to say, well, God might lower the hedge on us. I'm not saying that. I believe the Lord is protecting his vineyard. I believe he's got a hedge around his vineyard and God is here. But just remember that the devil or his minions is also here. And if they can get a foothold in your thinking, in your heart, you know, next time we have a business meeting and it doesn't go your way, you know what you could do? You could just let the devil all the way in. You could open up your heart and let Satan have a foothold, and not just a foothold, he might have a stronghold if you let him. He's always here. There's always a chance that that old Adam nature might be seduced by him just like Eve was, because I believe we gotta remember, we're not, we're not insulated from the devil or his minions. We're not insulated from the old man. We got that problem with us even when we're in church, and that's why it's so important that we be diligent. So. We've gone from the situation that Job could see to the situation that Job could not see, which tells us that in every situation of life that we see, there's a situation we cannot see. Remember that. 
because we're going to learn some things here about what the devil is up to, and we're going to learn some wondrous things about what God is up to. And then we're going to see as we go through the book of Job, if indeed that's what we continue to do, or you just continue to read it, you're going to find that, that God's, God's role in this, in this horrible suffering of Job was not to cause the suffering. There was a hedge God had around him. The devil will tempt God to reach out and touch the body of Job and touch the stuff of Job. But instead, God will just stick with his job, which is to, to manage the hedge. And we're going to learn a couple of things. I believe there's, I'll leave you with this. I believe there's two reasons. I don't know all the reasons, and I don't have all the answers, as I said. But what I, read, what I'm figure, what I see when I read the book of Job, there's two, two reasons. You say, why did God lower the hedge? Why did God suffer Satan to do what he did? Well, there's two reasons. One is, Job, although a perfect and upright man, was not sinless. You can keep, we'll read that Job did pretty good. He held out pretty well. But as we read through the book of Job, we'll find that Job had some self-righteousness that needed to be dealt with. Job had some pride that needed to be dealt with. And you know, there's nothing to, to knock down your pride or self-righteousness than to endure the sufferings of this present world. Also, though, I believe that God was proud of Job. You're going to find that, that, you know what we read about him being perfect and upright and fearing God and eschewing evil? God confirms that to Satan. God's assessment of Job is, man, I'm proud of him. I'm glad. I, I, look at my, my servant Job. Look at my servant. Look at what he's doing. And, and the devil slanders him as the devil always does. It says he's just doing it because you're blessing him, God. And if you just touch him and take away his blessings, he will, he will, uh, he will curse you to his face, to your face. And you know what? We don't ever see Job do. We don't ever see Job curse God. Job didn't understand everything, and he sure misunderstood the nature of God at times. But he never cursed God. I believe the Lord suffered that hedge to be lowered partly to prove to the devil, hey. The people of God, you know, the devil can't understand why we would serve God out of love. It's surely it's got to be because, because we're paid lovers of God, because God's blessing us, therefore, and when he quit blessing us, we'll start cursing him. And that's our, temp, that's our inclination in the flesh, okay? But I'll tell you this. I believe God's proud of us, if I can use that word. He's proud of his children when they endure suffering and they endure it patiently. And ultimately, God is pitiful, and of tender mercies, as Jane told us. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.